Hello, and welcome to The Exit, presented by Flippa, the number one platform to buy and sell online businesses. Flippa manages over a billion in deal value annually and combines expert buy and sell side advisory with its market-leading valuation tool, deal room, off-market offering, market insights, and AI-based deal-by-deal matching engine. Now for The Exit. The Exit is a 30-minute podcast featuring awesome entrepreneurs who have been there and they have done it. The Exit talks to operators who have bought and sold businesses of all different sizes. You learn how they did it, why they did it, and get exposure to the world of Exits. It's a world occupied by a small few, but accessible to many. In this episode of The Exit, I sit down with Greg Sloan, an awesome entrepreneur who walks through his exit to the Mather Group. He started a company called Daniel Advisors, and in this episode, he literally walks through end-to-end what it was like having two potential corded acquiring companies fall through within a year time frame, and then going through a broker with 70 plus interested buyers, narrowing that down to nine from the broker, and then going forward with two, one in Atlanta where he was based and one in Chicago. And he talks through that whole experience. This is a really great episode for anybody that is interested in going through a banker or someone that's going to shop around your deal. And the fact that Greg had already gone through two different processes with two different potential acquirers leading into this banker negotiation It was such a value add because he had everything ready. He had all of his ducks in a row. He knew exactly what needed to be said. And also, he had his three key metrics, his values, his vision, and the valuation. And these types of metrics that people are tracking internally for themselves and as a business are extremely underrated. And it was really fun walking through this with Greg and the importance of these three key metrics that he tracks internally and externally. So without further ado, let's sit down with Greg Sloan, and he's going to walk us through his whole journey here. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the ultimate preparedness episode here on The Exit. All right. I am here with Greg Sloan, the legendary serial entrepreneur. How's it going, Greg? I'm good, Steve. Good to be with you today. Yeah. I'm excited to unpack your exit. But before we get there, let's start with your background. What got you into business and entrepreneurship? Well, you know, it's kind of um, in light of this past week, I'm from that little town in Hawaii called Lahaina, which has been on the news this entire past few weeks. That Front Street location is where I grew up. That school that burned down at the end called Kamehameha Third uh, Elementary School. I went to that elementary school. So uh, I am from Hawaii originally. And what I always say was my grandfather was the seed that planted me. He planted the seed into my entrepreneurship. So when I was a young kid and I would go over and spend summers at his house and just work in the yard with him, he was a mechanic, but he had gone blind. So I was his eyes. Well, he taught me how to fix things. But he would also pick up a cotter pin uh, every once in a while. And he would say, Greg, if you just invent this cotter pin, you'll be a millionaire. And of course, back then, this is in the uh, early, probably uh, late 70s, early 80s, he thought a million dollars was everything. But, you know, he planted that seed in me of 
do something, build something, create something. And, um, you know, that's where it got started. Nice. Very nice. Planting that seed is really key. So let's talk about the first successful business that you started. And let's talk about what that was like. Did you have a co-founder? Did you raise money? What was that process like? Yeah. So I'm going to say the first business I started, and the reason why I would call it a business is because I had a, I had an actual name and I had a business card. It was uh, selling cell phones or actually leasing cell phones in the early 90s. This is when mobile phones first came out. And individuals, I was here in Atlanta. I moved to Atlanta in 1988, uh, went to college here. And this is back when you couldn't purchase a cell phone. You would actually lease them or it was more expensive to purchase. So I set up a little company as a licensing agent for one of the local vendors. And um, if you're familiar with the term, you know, heard it through the grapevine where you hear a rumor. Well, in Hawaii, uh, we use another term called coconut wireless. And so I thought it was a clever name for a little wireless uh, cell phone company, leasing company. So that was my first business. I did that for a summer and I, I, you know, you just got a commission for every, every uh, phone that you leased. And that probably was, um, the first sprouting of the seed where it was my thing. I had a business card. I had a business name and, um, you know, it, it got me addicted to the journey, I, I guess. So that was, that was probably before I, um, I'm, sh- I'm trying to think I may not have even graduated college when I did that. Um, I, I was on the eight-year college plan, had a degree in finance from have a degree in finance from Georgia State University. When I left Georgia State, I started working for Prudential as an insurance agent and financial salesperson. And about two years into that venture or, or that career path, I had the ability to launch a side business, which was called the Financial Alliance, which quite frankly is a little similar to what I'm doing today, but Bottom line is, it was just a, a couple of um, financial advisors um, of a couple of different disciplines, CPA, insurance guy, myself. And we just served clients together, uh, did that for about two years. And that was probably the first business that actually had a little bit of legs. So that was probably 97-ish, 1997. Nice. Nice. And that kind of took you to the the next venture, which is the the sort of successful one. Was that Daniel Advisors or was that after that? So in 1999, I realized my career was on the right trajectory, but with the wrong organization. So I left Prudential and I joined a company which eventually got purchased by Goldman Sachs. So I was a corporate guy for um, most of my 30s. So from age 29 to age 37, I was with Goldman Sachs. I'd been in the financial service industry for about 12 years. Um, I saw my career going in a direction that was not necessarily in parallel with the way the organization was going. And I decided at age 37, this was time to really launch my, truly spread my wings as an entrepreneur. And that's when I launched Daniel Advisors, which was uh, a personal CFO for C-suite executives and entrepreneurs. Very cool. Very cool. And how did that founding story begin? Were there multiple co-founders? And what types of things were you guys tracking at Daniel Advisors? So first of all, if you if you picked up on that, I launched a financial planning wealth management firm in March of 2007. Something happened in 2008 and 2009 <laughs> that the 
whole economy. I don't really remember what it was, but a lot of people got hurt. But uh, bottom line my, was my timing was terrible. And six months into the start, uh, I did have a consultant um, who was a friend, and he asked me if I if I would sell him fifty percent, and he could join the company. So even though I started it on my own, uh, I quickly took on a co-founder, and it was two of us. So we had a business plan that we were tracking. Obviously, incoming revenue. I, I was more more responsible for sales. He was responsible for operations and internal compliance, things of that sort. And we were just, you know, candidly at that time, we were tracking cash. And are we surviving, you know, quarter to quarter? We were pouring money into the company just to get it going. Obviously, the market is tanking at this point in time. The world's in chaos. And um, and then he got sick and actually passed away. So we, we really went through a very, very tough first few years. And um, it really, we didn't really come out of it probably until 2011, 2012. Wow. Wow. So yeah, timing was brutal there. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, scaling up towards the the acquisition itself. Uh, what yeah. was that process like? Um, you know, was what was the size of the team? And, you know, what did that deal sort of, how did that come to fruition? So quickly, in 2008, 2009, we tried to scale quickly as a small boutique firm. So we got to, I think, about eight folks, eight employees, uh, including ourselves. And really, we got there too quickly. So we had to pull back. I got it back down to about four people. Um, so I had to lay off half the staff, which was very painful. But um, And then once we settled in 2011, 2012, got our sort of our sea legs back under us, it was back to, okay, how can we grow this thing? And recognize I had been in the industry now, gosh, 15, 16 years. Um, and really from 2012 to 2015, really was focused on growing the um, size of our assets under management, which is the metric you typically track with a wealth management firm. Uh, I always had at least one other advisor, sometimes two other advisors working along with me, but they were typically junior of me. And in 2015, it was really the beginning of where the exit starts. So let's see, 2015, I'm a, I was 45 years old, I guess. And I had been in the industry for 20 years and realized that I probably don't want to be doing this longer than 30 years. So I sort of started to put together in my mind a 10-year plan uh, I still remember the moment that I that I sort of decided this. My wife and I were uh, visiting uh, someone in Daytona Beach, Florida. We were walking along the beach and just said, you know, what would our life look like five years, 10 years from now if we were no longer as responsible to manage this firm and this company and, and have these uh, employees? And so we just started putting together dreams of what that exit would look like. Um 2015, I realized I actually needed a partner that was an equity partner in order to help me sell the business. So I took on an equity partner um, and he was a, a minority shareholder, but he was another advisor. And in 16 and 17, I started to put together a plan, what most people now would call it the exit planning process, which is really take a look at the company, take a look at it. I had an external valuation done, uh, which did not look very good. 
but the good the good um, exercise that came out of that was look, this is what the value of the company is today, and here's twelve things that you can do to improve the value of the company. And so I started chipping away at those things, um, everything from shoring up the um, uh, technology infrastructure. We were we were software based. We needed to move to cloud based. We had to to operationalize some of the internal um, items that were not systematized, if you will, even though I was a process guy, it just wasn't fully baked. So it took us about three years and had a kind of did another valuation. I basically doubled the value of the company in three years and started talking to some potential acquirers in 2018. Nice. Very nice. Uh, I I do love the, there's a, a bunch of different exercises that people do around preparing themselves for an exit. One of my favorite ones is if if I was a, a brand new CEO and I came into the company that I'm running today and fired me as CEO and replaced myself, what would the few things be that they would immediately yeah. do? And it's such a fun thought exercise, kind of like what you're talking about of like, how can you do these check boxes to, to increase yeah. the value? And I like that you executed on that and doubled in in three years. That's incredible. So how did initial conversations begin with the acquiring company and what did that look like? So it was not, uh, you know, by this point in 2018, I had already had multiple conversations. In fact, I had so many conversations. Many of those were about around a merger or in some cases were me acquiring a smaller company. So during all of these years of growth, I was always open to some sort of coming together And what I realized was I was asking the same questions and I was looking for the same things over and over again. So in addition to the external checklist, I actually put together my own checklist, which I eventually called uh, the V3 model, V times three. And it was values, vision and valuation. Um, It really was, you know, if your values are not aligned with the other party, there's no point in even talking about the vision for the future. And if the vision for the future is not aligned and there's no point in talking about evaluation. So I used this and it was a spreadsheet. I still have it. I I share it with people. Uh, It ended up being 20 bullet points or 20 items on the checklist. And I would score each item on a one to six, one low, six being high. And as I would have a conversation with a potential um, suitor, I would then go back to my scorecard and I would just score in all 20 of these bullet points. And each of those categories had sort of a red, yellow, green. And my point was, if if I can't get past a red in any one or at least a yellow in each of these categories, then I'm not even moving the conversation forward. So um, back to the 2018 question, I had already had a template that had probably, I don't know, 15, maybe 13 or 14 conversations. So each time I had the next conversation, I knew it had to meet or exceed the previous conversation. And I met a CEO of a much larger firm. I guess they were about, oh gosh, 20 times my size. And I knew I wanted to sell to a larger firm. And we went through the courting period for about six months. You know, we were both going through our internal processes to, to determine whether this would come together well. And we got to we got through the values, we got through the vision and ultimately agreed on evaluation. 
um, had a letter of intent prepared. Both of us were ready to sign and it never got signed. Yikes. We'll get back to the interview in a second. I want to talk first about First Access from Flippa, where you get deals first, 21 days before the rest, actually. There are more buyers and investors than ever looking to acquire online businesses. And with First Access from Flippa, you can gain a competitive edge and beat out the competition. And Flippa is giving you, my dear Exit Podcast listeners, a 30-day free subscription to First Access. So did you know that 67% of businesses go under offer within the first 21 days of listing on Flippa? Yeah, that is true. Things move fast on Flippa. This is where first access comes in. As a buyer or investor, you can get deals 21 days before the rest when you're subscribed to first access. So what do you get? With first access, you'll receive online business listings 21 days before the rest, You get instant NDA access, letting you view everything confidential on Flippa. And this is a key one to save time. Third, you can earn premium buyer status, giving you preferential treatment. And this is such a main, main value proposition because as a seller, you're going to only want to talk to premium buyers. That is just a fact. And in my experience, people with these private listings, which is the next value is they're going to be the ones that are primarily only talking to buyers that have premium buyer status. And the last, most certainly not least, is view exclusive private listings that are only available to premium buyers. So this is the cream of the crop here. So jump the queue today. Claim your 30-day first access subscription at flippa.com slash exit. Once again, that's flippa.com slash exit. Now, back to the interview. Yikes. So that's a that's a, a pretty pretty big devastation blow because it's multiple years of you preparing for the exit, getting it all prepared. You find a uh the optimal yeah, great, great partner. Yeah. So what happened and then you know what what transpired after that fell through? So um it, it had nothing to do with either one of us. There were some things going on internally with their company that caused them to put the pause button, hit the pause button on additional acquisitions. I actually still keep up with that CEO today. Uh, I would say we're friends. We, we bounce ideas off each other. But I wanted to sell to the right party at the right time. So I guess I was very comfortable that this just wasn't the plan that God had for us. So in the middle of those six months courtship, I actually had gotten a phone call from a friend of mine who was with another firm that was probably 10 times my size. And I said, uh, you know, John, I appreciate the call, but I think this deal is going to go through. If it doesn't go through by any for any reason, I'll give you a buzz. And so the minute it didn't go through, I just called them up and I said, guess what? It didn't go through. (laughs) And uh, so then I started another courtship with that particular firm. And I want to say that one lasted another four or five months. Oh, wow. Until we got to the point where, again, using my values, vision and valuation, uh, there were some things I just couldn't get get over the hump on. And I essentially discontinued conversations with them. So I'd gone through one where I really wanted to do the deal. I went through another one where they really wanted to do the deal and I didn't. So this is now fast forward to the beginning of 2019. So 2018, I basically spent the whole year going through two different potential uh, acquisitions. 
lick my chops. Um, the spring of 2019, I was just tired, right? 12 months of trying to get a deal done. And I, I just took a few months off. By the time we got to the summer of 2019, I, I had a lot of conversations with my mentor and, and other folks that I would call my advisors. And one of them basically just said, look, if you're going to do this, like, you know, poop or get off the pot, do it right. So I decided that instead of doing it on my own, I would bring in an outside uh, consulting firm that was um, in the business of matching buyers and sellers. Now, recognize I had gone through three years of internal exit planning. I had gone through 12 months of dealing with two different suitors and two different levels of due diligence. So I had four years of preparation. When I met with the outside firm, my banker, if you want to call her that, looked at me and she said, Greg, you're going to be the client of the year. You are. We've never come across a company more ready for an acquisition than you. They had a process where they would internally send your, your tombstone or your, your, uh, your bullet point list out to some internal um, potential candidates. And she said, you'll, you'll get picked up before this even goes public. And she was right. We had two offers full price offers before I even met the potential um, suitors, but they still took them through their entire uh, marketing program. I think we ended up with 77 interested parties. Um, They selected, I said, I'm not talking to 77 people. I'm not talking to 20 people. You got to narrow this list down. So she narrowed it down to nine suitors, nine, nine acquirers, potential acquirers. I crossed two off and I interviewed seven. And as, as it turns out, the first two full price offers were effectively the, the two candidates, the two finalists. Um, because we had this outside firm doing the valuation, valuation was never really a discussion. The price was the price. What was negotiable was the terms and how long I needed to, to stay on for transition. So ultimately, in September of 2019, I got it down to these two final candidates. And probably over the course of three weeks, uh, really went back and forth. But um, one of them was based in Chicago. The ultimate buyer was based in Chicago, the Mather Group. And the, the second candidate was based here in Atlanta, which is where I'm at. Um, and I chose the firm in Chicago, flew up, met with uh, Stuart Mather. Um, face-to-face for the very first time. We spent two days together, went out to lunch, you know, really rolled up our sleeves trying to make sure that we were right fit. And I signed the deal before I left. So what I say is, you know, that I, I never, I hadn't even heard of the Mather Group. Great firm, by the way. And within two weeks of hearing of them for the very first time, I had a deal to sign uh, to sell, and within 100 days, within 100 days, we did a closing. So we we sold on January 1, 2020. Wow, wow, January 1, 2020. So right before things kicked off, uh, like the optimal optimal time to get out before the crazy. <laughs> well, as many listeners would know, and you know, selling a business uh, on terms doesn't necessarily mean that the price is the price as of the date of closing, because. You de- you typically have some sort of earnout and or yep. look back um, provision. So my deal was such that we had a look back provision, okay, twelve month look back, and three months into it, uh, well, two months into it, it looked great. Three months into it, it did not look great because COVID <laughs> started. <laughs> and yeah. six months into it, it really didn't look good. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. Crazy times, crazy times. But that's that's wild. Like shopping it around through a banker like that. I've heard of a lot of different stories, but that's that's quite a few interested parties. Over 70 interested is pretty remarkable. Yeah. So in our industry or the, the wealth management industry, which I was a part of um, and still a part of in some ways um, externally, th- there's still a, you know, 50 buyers for everyone's one seller. It may have cooled off a little bit in 2023, but back in 2020, 21, 22, even all through COVID, the number of buyers to sellers were just uh, lopsided. Uh, The reality is the typical owner in the wealth management space was about 60 years old, looking for the last two or three years, sometimes five years, but they really wanted to get a deal done um, before they were forced out. And as, again, anyone who does exit planning or sold a business, you cannot control timing. You know, the, the, you can control your, to some extent, you can control your EBITDA, but you can't control the multiple. And the multiple, multiple moves up and down based on the sentiment of the market. It's yeah. not a public market, but in the private market, multiples move up and down as well. So this was a period of time that the multiples were good really good, but they actually weren't as great as they became even one year later. The multiples went up after COVID, as weird as that sounds. And in fact, the multiples today might even be higher than they were when I sold. Really? Wow. That's possibly. I I haven't I I keep up with a couple of bankers in the industry, but they're still pretty high because again, you still have a demographic problem of of the uh, age of the of the owners of the wealth management firm are over 60 years old. Yeah. Well, I mean, we covered timing, preparedness. I love the three bullet points. It was vision, values, and valuation, right? Yeah, values, vision, and valuation. And the order is important, if you don't mind me. Yeah, yeah. Kind of just expanding on that. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you start with a vision for your company. But the vision for your company is supported by what you have is your core values. Sure, you have a, a mission, which is what you're actually, the product or service you're actually delivering, but you have this idea of how am I going to make the world a better place for others? And what am I uniquely qualified and gifted to do and to enter the market where no one else is? But when you're selling a company or you're bringing on people, values, in my opinion, go first because people can get excited about the vision. But if they don't have the same core values as you, that's probably not somebody you should be working with. So in an exit scenario, I always started with values. Do we have the same core values? Are, are my employees or my are my people going to fit culturally with your organization? Are my clients going to fit culturally within your organization? Because ultimately, if I'm exiting, then I have to feel like I've done the right thing of created a, creating a smooth transition for them. So values first, then we can talk about vision, where are we going? And then ultimately, you know, do we, do we agree on the economics? And, and I would say that if you get the first two right, then be, be generous on the third because those are the more important ones. And as long as the first two are right, it's not like you're going to come up with a crazy difference in valuation. No one's going to try to rape you and you're not going to try to to, to really stick it to the buyer if you guys are aligned on, on values and vision. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you answered pretty much my, my questions around timing, preparedness, negotiations, banker, all that, all, all through that story arc. It was a great, great step-by-step, like really, really well done on describing exactly what happened. So that brings us to the finale of knowing what you know now, what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? So I'm going to fast forward it a little further back. And the first thing, and I, so I coach other entrepreneurs. I, I do a couple of things. I have a software company with my wife, but um, a lot of my time and energy is as a CEO coach and a fractional CFO for other entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I tell them is don't do a 50-50. So there's a lot of folks that believe you should only do a 50-50. I'm in the other camp because when you're, when you're in a partnership situation and no one has the leverage, then it's sort of like a teeter-totter where you're sort of stuck with both of your feet off the ground. And neither one can move the needle. If you're 5149, someone can say, I know we don't agree, but I have the final straw. I have the final vote, excuse me. And so I'm going to go in that direction. If you're the 49%, you still have leverage because you can say, well, you know what? Then I'm going to quit, right? You're going to make the final decision. So my biggest thing that I tell entrepreneurs is, is don't do a 50-50, number one. Number two goes back to the values and vision. But Make sure not only do you go through the process of ensuring that you have high alignment and values, but the second thing I think is really important, which which I did not do the first time, and that is to make sure that you have the right behavioral or personality profiles, especially under stress. Anyone that's an entrepreneur understands that owning a business, running a business, scaling a business, it's it can... It can include many, many days of stressful times. When things are going well, it's really easy to get along with people. When stress arises, and I've done a lot of psychology. uh, In fact, that's one of the software tools that we built. It's called Friction EQ. But it's really understanding how does a person's behavior change as stress is induced into the situation. And when someone's behavior changes to something different, You've heard that expression, oh, their true colors are showing. Well, maybe it's just that this is how they respond to stress. There's a lot of factors that go into this from a psychological perspective. And I'm a finance guy. I'm not even a psych major. But I really have learned that, um, you know, we're brought up differently. And we were taught how to deal with stress differently by our parents or grandparents. And a lot of times you parrot what you were taught. That has nothing to do with your co-founder and has, has nothing to do with your partner. It's just how we deal with stress. So make sure you deal with, you understand how each other deal with stress. Well said. I like that. Understand the stress and how each other's deal with it. So let's talk about what you're working on now and where people can learn more about it. Yeah. So Go Beyond is a software company. As I mentioned, we do have a assessment in there called Friction EQ. We have another assessment called Purpose Pulse, which really helps to measure um, how fulfilled you are in your work, a personal and professional career. Um, so my wife runs that most most days, and then I spend a lot of my time as a coach of other CEOs. Uh, I primarily work on two sides of the of the business life cycle. I work with early stage entrepreneurs, and I work with um, entrepreneurs and founders that are within three to five years of exit. So I'm a certified exit planning advisor. I went through the journey myself. I really understand. Um, all the bullet points, all the metrics that it takes to sell your business. And so um, I, I enjoy I, I enjoy both sides of the spectrum, helping people launch a new vision, helping people uh, transition their vision to the next 
generation. Very nice. Very nice. And where can people learn more about it? Probably LinkedIn would be the best place to reach out to me. Um, I'm all over LinkedIn, but uh, my um, email at the software company is greg at gobeyond.work. And my coaching company is greg at talospartner.com, T-E-L-O-S, partner.com. Very cool. Very cool. Well, those are all the questions I have for you. Wherever you guys are listening on iTunes or Spotify, the links that Greg mentioned will be in the show notes. But thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story, Greg. Steve, I appreciate you having me. 